Well, amen, church. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We sang just a while ago in that song, Have Thine Away, Lord, filled with thy spirit till all can see Christ only always living in me. And indeed, that is a perfect line for what we will be seeing here in the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 17 is our main text for this morning, but we'll be looking kind of back and contextualizing a lot of some of the other occurrences in the book of Acts, but uh, nonetheless, filled with thy spirit till all can see Christ only always living in me. For the last several weeks, we went over the book of Luke, leading up until, of course, last week, and Brother Joe started our look at the book of Acts. Uh, but in the book of Luke, we were really focusing on that central theme of Luke's gospel, that being the kingdom of God. If you'll remember, we saw and uh, noted for us many times that that phrase itself, that the kingdom of God or, or kingdom, is repeated throughout Luke's gospel 33 Times And so it's just a very pointed, uh, repeated attempt of Jesus repeatedly, repeatedly saying and pointing to the ushering in of his kingdom, the inauguration of his kingdom and what that looks like. But then also we know that, that that kingdom was not consummated at Jesus' first coming, but it's consummated at his second. So what, what takes place in the meantime? What does that look like? Right? And so... We see uh, the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ and in his first coming. We see that inauguration and he communicates to his followers that uh, they would have a providential role to play in the advancement of his kingdom. And so we, we began to see that Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, but he gives his followers, disciples, a clear, distinct role to play and the advancement and the ushering in of that kingdom. So this morning we're going to see how this theme carries over into the sequel to Luke's gospel, which is the book of Acts. As we see the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church, we'll be compelled to analyze how we are called to live out the mission of the kingdom of God. And this is incredibly important because there's an unhealthy view of missions in the church today. And I say today, but uh, it could have been around for longer than I know, but I don't mean to be hyperbolic, of course, that uh, this, this unhealthy view of missions would have followers of Christ view missions as optional, as if one could say, well, I just don't feel called to that. Right? And so, in other words, some, some say, I, I'm called to missions, right? In which I say, absolutely, you are, as well as me and everybody else who follows Christ. And, and so, that's what I want to see is that my prayer is that if, if that's you this morning, that it kind of has this idea that missions is for some and not for others, that you have to have some sort of special call or some sort of special motivation or something of that nature, my prayer for you this morning is that you would be overwhelmed, and really all of us would be overwhelmed at the reality of God's calling on all Christians to participate in the advancement of his kingdom. And so we saw in the book of Luke this continued theme, this repeated theme, the establishment of the kingdom of God. 
and the ushering in of that kingdom, the inauguration of that kingdom at Christ's first coming, and how all of us have a role to play in the advancement of that kingdom. The Lord has given us a wealth of opportunity in relationships for engaging in missions as a church family. But how do we do that? What do we say? Where do we start? Well, let's look to the Word to find direction. I want us to, to begin with our main text for this morning, and then we'll, we'll go backwards a little bit. But let's start. I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word once again as we read from Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come to your word this morning and we see the clarion call on all believers to make disciples, to be witnesses, God, I pray that you would impress upon each and every one of us in here this morning that call. Help us to clearly see, according to your word, how this is not something that is done for some in the church, not for others, but that this is an abundantly clear call upon all of your followers, all followers of Christ, to make disciples, to reason from the scriptures, to bear witness to the gospel. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to that. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And help us to see those opportunities that you've given us as a church family and walk in them obediently. I pray that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So again, I want to, to back us up just a little bit after now seeing here just these, uh, the overwhelming receptiveness to the gospel from these Jews at Berea and the example that they give us. We'll, we'll look at that here in just a little bit, but I want to back us up to the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, which picks up right where Luke's gospel left off. If you'll notice, if you'll turn back to, to Acts chapter 1. We see the disciples here in the book of Acts. If we, if we look at the end of the book of Luke, not to throw you a curveball there, but you see them led out to Bethany. And then here in Acts 1, we pick up with the disciples at Bethany. So Luke's just continuing this story. There's a continued 
theme, a continuation of what Jesus was doing and seeing how he had inaugurated all that he had taught and done and that when he left, that wasn't just, okay, the kingdom is here, it's done, that's it, right? No, but like this is a continuation that now he's left and he's left his helper, as Jesus called him, the Holy Spirit, to empower his church to grow and to spread all that they, and to witness and testify to all that they had seen in him. So we pick up in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him. So this is the, the disciples, the 11 at this point, right? Judas is gone, and they've come together and they, with the resurrected Christ. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So here we are, just not even seven verses into, uh, or rather six verses into the, the sequel to Luke's gospel. And again, what was the a continued repetitive theme in the gospel of Luke? The kingdom of God. Here we are six verses into Luke's gospel. And what do we see? That word, the kingdom to Israel. And this is in the question of the disciples to Christ. Well, how does Jesus respond? He said to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, as you can imagine, this is a pretty remarkable moment. They ask a question, they get a response that's completely different than what they were looking for because it's a pretty pointed question that they ask, looking for a specific answer. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus is caught up into the clouds and they're just kind of standing there bewildered. And then the two appear beside them in white robes and they tell them, why do you stand looking into heaven? Of course, the obvious answer is like, well, did you not just see what just happened? Like, right? So they're standing there looking at heaven and they're like, this Jesus who was taken up, he's going to come back. In other words, if you'll remember, this, all of this phrasing should have sounded a little familiar to what we read when we looked at Mark chapter 13, right? So this is a repeated theme. And Jesus in that um, that parable in Mark 13 tells of a master who leaves his servants in charge and goes away and then he tells them when he comes back, it's like a master who comes back and may, wanting to make sure that they, were stay, they had stayed awake, right? And that's what we see here is like, hey, don't fall. That's what these two men are like, hey, don't fall asleep now. Like he told you to stay awake whenever the master left. He's gone. Now get to work. It's not for you to just stand here looking to the clouds waiting for his return because he will return that way. But you don't need to be worried about that. You need to get to work. So what does that work look like? Well, I want us to look at a few things. As again, we noted many times the emphasis of the gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God. All right. So here is this repeated theme again. And the disciples ask this question in verse 6. Lord, is this the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And so these men had grown in their understanding of what Jesus had taught them. But notice they're still lacking in their understanding of what this kingdom looked like. And when it was going to be complete, they're still thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're still thinking of leading a revolt against Rome. So in their minds, Jesus is risen. We're going to get this Holy Spirit power. Perfect. Time to overthrow Rome. Right, Jesus? Like, is this the time? And Jesus is like, wrong, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't empower you to accomplish worldly desires. Instead, Jesus says what? It empowers you to be my witnesses. I think we do well to remember that. The Holy Spirit doesn't empower us to accomplish worldly desires. But the purpose and the coming of the Holy Spirit is that they would be empowered to be witnesses. Don't let that miss you because this is what becomes the central idea of how the kingdom of God is going to be established. It's through the Holy Spirit of God empowering the people of God not to do their will but His. So many people today misunderstand, misinterpret, and frankly twist the working of the Holy Spirit. So let us not be mistaken church. The empowering of the Holy Spirit is all about the kingdom of God and nothing about us. We would do well to remember that as we think about and dwell on the Spirit. The empowering of the Holy Spirit is all about the kingdom of God and nothing about us. We'll hear terms like anointing and gifting and slain in the Spirit, drunk in the Spirit, all of it completely devoid of witness to the kingdom of God, which is what the empowerment of the Holy Spirit here is implied to be. All of it merely a crafty use of biblical language to engage in self-affirming flattery. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses on mission for the kingdom of God. Therefore, we need to understand, and I've used this point before in previous sermons, and I want, I want this to be a repetitive point. I want us to get this. To be Christian is to be on mission for the kingdom of God. There is no option when it comes to our imperative to be on mission for the kingdom of God. We must be on mission for, from the moment our head leaves the pillow in the morning to the moment we lay it down at night. Every waking moment, we are on mission to make Christ known in our homes, parents. Our homes are our primary and first mission field that we encounter in the day. Every waking moment, we are to be on mission to make Christ known in our workplaces. When was the last time you considered your workplace to be a mission field? You don't have to wait for a one-time date on the calendar to do something of outreach. The, 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 the outreach is daily. This is the point, that our communities are our mission field. If you had to guess what the number one barrier to sharing the gospel was for people what would you say? I think most of us would say either, you know, they're afraid or we're afraid or that we don't know what to say or a combination of both, 
right? And I want to give us a couple things to consider when it comes to sharing the gospel and, and the hesitancies or the, the barriers that we see to that in our life. We have to ask ourselves, on my own, am I capable and equipped to faithfully and obediently be on mission for the kingdom? On my own, am I capable and equipped to faithfully and obediently be on mission for the kingdom? And the answer should be a resounding no. Because you're not supposed to do it on your own. However, if I truly believe what Jesus says here, am I on my own? The answer should be a resounding no. Because I'm empowered by the Spirit of God to be His witness. So our confidence in missions does not come from our own knowledge, skill, or abilities. Our confidence comes from the one who empowers us. And so if, if there's gospel sharing hesitancy, if there's evangelistic hesitancy in you because I don't know what to say, I don't know, I don't know how to breach that conversation, what about rejection, what if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to, that's not your concern. So that you have an imperative here. From Jesus, you will be my witnesses. And that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's at, in, in belief, right? So you have the Holy Spirit. You have faith. That is your equipping. That is where your confidence is. So maybe the reason you've been so afraid and unconfident to share the gospel is because you've simply been relying on yourself rather than remembering that you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witness. Well, so I, again, I said I wanted to give us a couple of things to consider. So that's the first thing. It's like, are you relying on your own power or are you truly submitting to the power and the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Well, what does the Holy Spirit empower us to do? As it says here. Witness, martyrus is how it reads in the Greek. And that's where we get our word martyr. But it simply means to testify to something. So how does the Holy, Holy Spirit empower us to testify? And what does the Holy Spirit empower us to testify to? Well, if you continue in chapter 1, if you go down to verse 16, the disciples now, after the you know, angels, the men in white robes had to kind of you know, snap their fingers, getting them to wake up and stay awake as Jesus had told them to. Then they gather together in a room and they realize kind of that they need to add another to their, their fold to make it another even 12. And they were all of one accord with that. And we read in verse 15, Peter stands up among them to kind of take, take leadership here. And he, and he begins, this is, again, first thing that he's pointing them to on the other side of Christ ascending into heaven, on the other side of the ascension. He says this, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So the first thing that Peter testifies to and points all the group to 
is the word concerning everything that happened. That what happened with Judas, that wasn't a happenstance, that wasn't him acting on his own behalf, that was, that was in accordance with what? The scriptures. Okay, so now let's fast forward a little bit and let's go to chapter 2. We have the day of Pentecost and this coming of the Holy Spirit. So the day of Pentecost arrives and they're all together. I want you to go to verse 11 of chapter 2. And they receive the Holy Spirit. We know this familiar story, many of us. And they begin to speak in the languages of others. Again, we were told that there were all sorts of believers that were gathered there in this day. And believers, you know, Parthians, Medes, Elamites. You can see all those listed there in verses 9 and 10. And you pick up in verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So all these that are gathered are from other uh, backgrounds, ethnicities and the like. They hear the disciples who've now received the Holy Spirit speaking in their own languages. And they're telling of what? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so they're asking themselves, they're perplexed. They ask themselves, what does this mean? And so they're, oh, well, they must be filled with new wine is, is some that mock them with this, right? And so Peter stands up in the midst of them. Again, it's Peter, and he's leading in this moment. And he lifts up his voice. And he says that they're not drunk because it's only the third hour of the day. Hopefully they wouldn't have been, you know, drunk at any other hour of the day either. But nonetheless, verse 16 of chapter 2. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's what Peter says. They're not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So these men are perplexed because they're hearing in their own language the, the mighty works of God. And then Peter clarifies after some mockers say it's because they're drunk, that they're not drunk. And he points them to what? Again, to the scriptures. You continue on to verse 23. Peter continues. And he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he goes on to quote many more scriptures. For David says concerning him, and he quotes from Psalm 16 there. And then he goes on and he continues to point to other scriptures. And you go down to verse 32, our verse for this month. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. The very thing Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And so Peter, this first opportunity, having received, been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the men, again, what did they say? We hear them telling in our own tongues 
the mighty works of God. And then Peter goes on to quote Scripture and point Scripture and reason from the Scriptures and say, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. See, church, the Holy Spirit empowers us to testify by illuminating our minds to understand the Word and in turn testify according to the Word. This is what we see in the day of Pentecost. It wasn't shouting affirmations, flailing around. It wasn't gibberish, nor was it them saying simply, Jesus loves you, just try him out. What have you got to lose? If I'm right, I've gained nothing. But if you're wrong, you've lost everything. It wasn't them saying any of that or any of the other watered-down gospel tricks that modern evangelicalism has brought about. No, they testified To what? To the word. That those hearing may see that what God had done in Christ was in perfect continuation of his plan. They reasoned from the scriptures to show that this wasn't something new, but this was a promise continued in Christ. And that's where I want us to see and understand. To be on mission for the kingdom of God, we must be empowered by the Spirit of God. Okay, we got that part, right? We see that. But what does the Spirit of God do? He illuminates the Word of God for the glory of God to be made known in Jesus Christ. This is the working of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's activity does what? It empowers us for the mission by illuminating the Word and pointing to Christ. So the activity of the Spirit is always for the purpose of what? Pointing to the glory of God. Not for the attention of the Spirit himself, nor for our own selfish attention. Use that framework, which we clearly see here, to clearly filter how others talk about the Spirit of God. The activity of the Spirit is always for the purpose of pointing to the glory of God, not for the attention of the Spirit himself. Because these men, what they don't do is they don't start talking about simply the Spirit. They testify to what God the Father had done in the crucifixion, death, resurrection of Christ. And what that meant for those who were hearing it. We continue to see this very thing as you go on to chapter 4 of Acts as the kingdom continues to spread because what do we know what happens there immediately they ask after upon hearing Peter testify and be a witness to all these things that this Jesus this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses what do they say brothers what must what shall we do And Peter responded, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what do they go on to do? The church grows. They have 2,000 plus that come to know Christ there. And you go on to chapter four and you pick up in verse five as they receive, as Peter and John had healed this man and the crowds weren't too happy with that. So they arrested Peter and John And on the next day, they're putting them on trial. On the next day, this is verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who have the high priestly family. So the, the very same people who had done what? Crucified Christ. 
And Peter and John are before them in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. A reference to Scripture. The builders, which has become a cornerstone. Another reference to Scripture. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So, upon receiving pressure and persecution simply for going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, what, do Peter, what does Peter, once again, bear witness and testify to? the workings of God, the glory of God, and the face of Jesus Christ as according to the scriptures. And this is what we are called to bear witness to, church, as we are called to be his witnesses and go forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we do. We bear witness to his working according to the scriptures. So going back to our text for today, we see, of course, a lot happens between this, these moments and what we're, what we're, the, where we find ourselves here in chapter 17 is they add to the fold Paul upon another witnessing of the resurrected Christ himself and bearing witness to what the scriptures and according to what he had done. And we come here to our text for today, chapter 17, verse 10. And what has happened here is that, that they, the, this group, this missionary group, Paul and Silas, had gone to Thessalonica and they had borne witness according to the scriptures. We look in chapter 17 and verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, goes into the synagogue, and on, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So this crowd, they get upset about this because of what, uh, because many in this crowd are persuaded because they've borne witness to the scriptures and they join Paul and Silas. And so these Jews in Thessalonica, they get upset about this and they chase Paul and Silas out of town. Right? So we come down to verse 10 of chapter 17, and we see that Paul and Silas have gone on to another city of Berea. Now, in Berea, they find a much different crowd. And why do they find a more receptive crowd of Jews? Why? Well, let's read again. Verse 10 The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So they did exactly what they did in Thessalonica. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 
Many of them therefore believed. The key there is therefore. It's because of their examination of the scriptures and their seeing and believing and having the scriptures illuminated to them by the Holy Spirit because of the witness of Paul and Silas that they were way more receptive to the gospel. And here's what I want you to see. It's that the Spirit of God equips us for the mission of God with the Word of God. The Spirit of God equips us for the mission of God with the Word of God. If you want to know how to be more equipped and be more confident in sharing the gospel, it's as simple as doing exactly what these Berean Jews did. Examine the scriptures. That's why I'm so thankful for our Sunday school leaders. That's why I'm so thankful for these times that we get to have on Sundays and Wednesdays. That's why I'm so thankful for our group of ladies who are leading our library ministry as we've continued to add more and more tremendous resources to help grow us as disciples. And those resources are available. But if we want to be equipped for the mission of God, as we've been compelled and called to be on mission for the kingdom of God, we must examine the scriptures. We must be ready to reason and bear witness from the scriptures. We can't merely give anecdotal examples and stories from our own life because those can only go so far. We must point to the scriptures to show that what God has done in Christ, he has been doing from the foundation of the world according to his own foreknowledge. Therefore, to be properly equipped, we must study the scriptures. And we must know the scriptures. Now, you might say to yourself, what do you, what do you mean? What, why add on study and know? Isn't that a bit repetitive? Yeah, maybe, but it's intentionally repetitive. Here's what I want us to understand is that there needs to be a, a distinction between coming here week after week and maybe attending Sunday school every now and then, but I'll make sure I come to worship, or maybe attending worship and then walking away with either no knowledge or simply a knowledge that puffs up. A knowledge that makes us feel like we are self-righteous or that because we have the knowledge, we are somehow better or better off. How many of us walk out those doors on Sunday or Wednesday and can't articulate what we've studied here together? I can hear you wiggling in your seats. I shudder to think of this. How many of us walk out those doors and can't communicate the gospel from the scriptures? It's not enough to study it if it's not leading to a knowledge which is transforming us by the renewing of our minds. We must study the scriptures and we must know the scriptures. Why? Because we've been compelled to be witnesses of the scriptures. This Jesus God has raised up and of this we are all witnesses. Are you 
being a witness to the raising up and the resurrection of Christ and the good news of the gospel. Because this goes on to the next two points, is that we must, in order to be equipped, we must reason from the Scriptures. So it's not enough to just study it and to know it and then keep it to ourselves. But we must be able to articulate how that truth has changed our lives in here. How we've been moved, not just from a head knowledge, but a heart that has been changed and renewed and regenerated to new life in Christ. This is the gospel. But not just merely an anecdotal example, but again, a continuing pointing to the scriptures, a reasoning from the scriptures to say, this is the gospel. And then from there, it doesn't just end with us just simply handing someone a track and saying, hey, read that. It might change your life. Hey, read that. Just try it out, right? But how can I communicate the gospel from my own mouth is what we need to be compelled to, to know. And then it doesn't end there because we know it didn't end there for us because you're here. It doesn't end with simply just coming to salvation and then, okay, I can just kind of figure everything else out of that. But we have to disciple from the scriptures. A holistic view of evangelism doesn't view the, the, the prayer as the end result. A holistic view of evangelism looks past the salvation of the sinner to the continued discipling. Because on the other side of salvation, we join the church where we come together to bear one another's burdens, to walk through the scriptures together as these Berean Jews did and say, it's all there. So that we can then go on to communicate it more. Because then, where do Paul and Silas go after this? Paul leaves and he goes on to Athens. Because you might be saying to yourself, well, these were Jews, so they, they had an understanding of the Scripture, so that's why, that's why they used that tactic of sharing the gospel, right? No, there, there's just one tactic of sharing the gospel in the Bible, and it's reasoning from the Scriptures, right? And, and they go on, and Paul goes to Athens, the heart of pagan ideology and philosophy. And what does he do? He reasons from the scriptures using philosophic language and ideology, but he points to the truth of the scriptures. So yes, even though our context changes, how we go to the scripture might change, and the language we use and those types of things might change, but the core remains the same. The truth, the foundation remains the same. The gospel remains the same. We don't water it down. We don't change it for context. We might change how we get to it, but it remains the same. So this is what we've been called to do, church.